hesitant to interrupt so much wonderful friendship and fellowship. Maybe we should just go on like this. It's so beautiful to see and hear all of your faces and voices. Welcome to the 2017 edition of a long-standing Northminster tradition, our winter lecture series. Northminster's winter lecture series has brought to Jackson some of the brightest and best uh, thinkers and writers in uh, religious life. And uh, this year we add to that long and beautiful tradition by welcoming our 2017 teacher and preacher, Dr. Walter Sheridan. Uh, Buddy and Kay, we are so glad uh, that you are here. Thank you for coming. Um, you would think it would be easy for me to introduce Buddy Sheridan, but actually uh, it's kind of hard to know uh, how to, to talk about the facts of Buddy and Kay's uh, life among us when uh, for uh, our own family, uh, life itself is so deeply entwined with Buddy and Kay Sheridan. Uh, when I went to be the pastor at the First Baptist Church of Macon, Georgia, I was almost 31, and Marcia and I had a five-year-old son and a daughter who was a toddler, and uh, I was about as unprepared in every way you can think of to be the pastor of that church as a human being could be. Uh, and uh, Buddy and Kay, along with others, were enormously kind to us and patient with us and um, helped us find our way and find a voice. And that uh, mentorship and friendship has just gone on across the years. So uh, uh, thank you so much for more things than I can name. When we began to think about our 2017 uh, winter lecture series in the adult ministries committee, we were, of course, first and foremost mindful of the fact that 2017 is the 50th anniversary year for Northminster. On May 7th of this year, we will celebrate uh, 50 years to the day of our life together as a congregation. We, uh, as we thought about that, it, it occurred to us that 2017 would also be the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So we began to think about, uh, wow, wouldn't it be something if we could somehow think in terms of 550, the Reformation and Northminster, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and the 50th anniversary of our small, local, particular expression of those passions and values that helped fuel the Protestant Reformation. As we thought about that in the Adult Ministries Committee, the name which kept coming to the surface was the name of uh, Buddy Sheridan, um, a Baptist uh, church historian of the First Order, more than 20 years chairman of the Religion Department at Mercer University, uh, author and or editor of 17 books, uh, Not a Silent People, being the introduction to Baptist thought and history and heritage for a generation or more. Uh, such an important book for so many Baptists and others. And so the time has come for us to, to welcome uh, Buddy as our teacher. Buddy and Kay are both retired from Mercer now. Kay from the Mercer University School of Medicine where she was a member of the faculty. And Buddy from his more than 20 years as chair of the religion department at Mercer. Our adult ministries committee has done a beautiful job of planning this weekend, chaired by Max Arinder and Joanne Ratliff. Uh, the committee has uh, touched uh, so many uh, important points and connected so many necessary dots to, to bring us to this moment. 
And uh, so now uh, we welcome our 2017 winter lecture teacher and preacher uh, to lead us as we think together about uh, 550, the Reformation and Northminster. Please join your hearts with mine in prayer. Eternal and loving God, thank you for a beautiful day, a beautiful moment, and every face and voice in the room. Amen. I've got this computer up here, so you'll think I know what I'm doing. won't serve any good purpose for you, but I hope it will for me. Kay and I are delighted to be back in our home state, um, back in this church which we have loved and admired from afar. And I know you hear that from so many people, and that's part of what I'd like to get you to talk about with me uh, during these uh, presentations. <clears throat> I, was, uh, I was intrigued by the committee's theme of 550 in the Reformation and Northminster, asking me to connect both of those. Um, and so what I'm going to do uh, this afternoon and tomorrow afternoon, uh, in the morning I'll simply preach a sermon. But this afternoon I'm gonna, it, it was wonderful for me to have to go back. And uh, I retired eight, eight, nine years ago and I've forgotten most of the church history that I've taught. <laughs> so, and, and so don't press me on some of this stuff. But it, it was fun to go back and, and look at it and learn some of it again. Uh, and particularly to think about bouncing off of the Reformation uh, with a little bit of history, and I hope with a theological idea, uh, and bounce it onto your church. Um, I know a little bit about the history of your church. I, I, I don't know nearly as much as you do, but I know a little bit about it. And um, so that part of it intrigues me as well. So this afternoon, I want to talk about what the Protestants got right in the Protestant Reformation. In the morning, I'm going to preach a sermon I've never preached before entitled What the Catholics Got Right. So don't let some of those other kinds of Baptists know that I'm preaching that kind of sermon. <laughs> but I tell you, the more I looked at this, uh, the more I, I, I got this invitation about a year ago, didn't I, Chuck? Where did Chuck go? <laughs> I got this invitation about a year ago, and so I have been playing with this uh, back and forth for about a year. and. Uh, I've really changed my mind about some things about the Reformation. Uh, they got it wrong. I got it right. Now I'm going to tell you what the right part of it is. But this afternoon I'm going to talk about what the Protestants got right. And in the morning I'm going to preach on what the Catholics got right. And then tomorrow afternoon I'm going to talk about what both the Protestants and the Catholics got right. Uh, I read a book 40 years ago that some of you may have read. Uh, by um, a Catholic theologian and philosopher named Michael Novak. You know that name? Uh, Michael Novak wrote this book called Ascent of the Mountain, Flight of the Dove. Ascent of the Mountain, Flight of the Dove. I love the metaphors. And they have stayed with me over all of these years, and I've used them time and time again. What I'm doing this afternoon is talking about the flight of the dove, which is what I think the Protestants got right. And that is the gift of the grace of God that comes to us freely, unexpectedly, surprisingly, um, something we didn't anticipate, the lift and the gift of the grace of God. Um, I'm going to use the ascent of the mountain as a metaphor for the Catholics. They work hard, you know. 
uh, and particularly at the time of the Protestant Reformation, it was an emphasis upon some works. But one of the things that I realized when I went back and did the preparation for this is, we have drawn that line too concretely between grace and works. It was not that the Catholics did not know grace. Their whole sacramental system was built on grace. So it was not that they didn't know grace, it was just that they emphasized something that Luther reacted against. And it was not that Luther didn't know works. Uh, he was much, by the way, much of the 95 Theses that I'll talk about is about works. It's about what you do as a Christian. So I'm using these two metaphors, um, the ascent of the mountain, the flight of the dove, and today it is uh, the flight of the dove. I really would like for you to uh, stop me at any point. Um, Chuck said we can do this any way we want to, and uh, I'd like for you to be a class and interrupt me or correct me or make changes as you want to. Uh, if you don't do that, I'm going to prod you later on to join me in some discussion. I want to talk first of all about the context of the Reformation. Just a, just a word. Um, historians say that the Reformation began on October 31, 1517, as you know. Martin Marty, the great church historian at the University of Chicago, now retired, has written a 91-page book that I would really want to recommend to you. It's called October 31, 1517, Martin Luther and the Day that Changed the World. A little bit hyperbolic, I think, but, uh, but it was an important day, a very important day. There, there are 91 pages of commentary in here on the 95 Theses. And the 95 theses are listed in the back. So it's worth the book uh, for you to get the, uh, particularly during Lent, by the way. This would be a wonderful book to work through Lent with because it is a book about repentance. It's a book about how to live uh, the Christian life. Martin Martin. So on October 31, 1517, Luther draws up these 95 propositions for debate. He goes from one end of Wittenberg down to the other, and he goes to the castle uh, church, the cathedral church, and he nails these 95 theses or posts them or pastes them or something on the door there. Hollywood has turned that into great drama. And uh, in fact, uh, my favorite book about uh, Martin Luther is this book here. It's an old one and some of you have read it and others of you, if you want to read a book on Martin Luther, I would start with Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther uh, by Roland Bainton, B-A-I-N-T-O-N. Roland Bainton taught for years at Yale University. But Luther nailed those 95 theses to that cathedral door and it's been made Hollywood and it's the portrayal in here is high drama too. It is beautifully written. Uh, this is an elegantly written history book. Uh, but when Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door, nobody paid any attention to it. It was an invitation for scholarly debate. What could be more boring? I mean, really. And it's about repentance, for heaven's sake. Um, when Kay and I had our 50th anniversary, we, we went to Europe and um, visited with good friends Charlie and Sandy Long that some of you may know. And uh, they said, well, let's go on a Reformation tour. So we, had, we ended up in Wittenberg. And we just happened to get a motel, uh, weren't paying any attention to anything. I looked out the window and I said, Kay, there's the church. <laughs> so. We went over there and genuflected several times. <laughs> um, but Luther put these theses up on that door. He had no idea that anything was going to happen 
except there would be some scholarly feedback. That was what he was hoping for. Well, within a matter of months, he became one of the most famous people in all of Europe. I want to come back to this later on because you would never have expected it. Luther hadn't done anything up to this point in his life. He had written one introduction to one little book. Nobody knew him. But he becomes famous all over Europe very quickly. We'll come back and talk about what was in those 95 theses in just a moment. By the time Luther came along, uh, I am not looking at a watch. Honey, if you will look at one. Uh, call me down. Well, yeah, Chuck wants you to stop me. <laughs> well, no, you hold it. Okay. Uh, uh, by the time that Luther came along, he was born in 1483. By the time he came along, there was in the Western world what was known as the medieval synthesis. What that meant was that all of Western life was synthesized around the Catholic Church. All of life, art, you can't go to Europe and study Renaissance and Reformation art without studying Catholicism, politics, economics, literature, everything was built around the Catholic Church. What October 31, 1517 eventually did was to shatter the medieval synthesis. It tore it apart. And as a result of it, there emerged what we know as Protestantism. When, when Luther came into uh, prominence, there were two major branches of Christianity. One was Catholicism, and one is what you and I know as Orthodoxy. If you'll get a map of Europe in your mind right now, and particularly think about the boot of Italy, if you'll draw a line right down the edge of that, right edge of that boot, everything to the left is Catholic and West. Everything to the right is Orthodox um, and East, thanks. Uh, I really need people to finish my sentences now. <laughs> Dave finishes them all the time. Uh, so this medieval synthesis, there was no Reformation in the East. There, there are very few Protestants in the East. Uh, the Reformation comes in the West, uh, in the heart of Germany, in France, in the Netherlands, uh, in Scandinavia, um, in England, and then of course transmitted to the United States and North America. So this medieval synthesis is broken down. And no Protestants in the East, but we have Protestants emerging in the West. So that's a little bit about the context. Now what was the Reformation about? What was the content of those 95 theses that Luther nailed on that door? The issue was really very simple. What can we do about our sin? What can we do about our sin? Can you imagine anybody getting interested in a document being nailed to a cathedral door about that? What can, be, what can we do about our sin? But it was the critical issue for Luther, and it became the critical issue of the Reformation. There were two ways of dealing with it, the Catholic way. Now we're talking 16th century, we're not talking 20th century. A lot has happened in the Catholic Church since Martin Luther, and particularly Vatican II, for which most of us can be grateful. Um, so what was the Catholic way in, in the 16th century of dealing with sin? The Roman Catholic Church had seven sacraments at this time that they talked about. Uh, I know we got some Catholics here. 
and they can't answer this question, but how many of you Protestants can name the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church? You want to try? No, confession and penance are the same. Uh, holy orders. Why don't we start at the beginning? <laughs> Baptism. Baptism, of course. Yeah. Baptism. Marriage. Right. Baptism takes care of sins that you bring into the world. Uh, holy Eucharist. Uh, confirmation. Then penance which is often called confession, wrongly so. It's not just confession. There is a process to penance. Um, holy marriage, holy orders, the ordination of the priesthood, and then uh, the last rites. Those were the seven sacraments. The one sacrament that Luther teased out and chose to react against though all the rest of the sacraments fell for Luther except two. He kept two of the sacraments. You know which ones? Sure, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But he reinterpreted those two. He did, however, hold on to a good bit of the penance. He just didn't hold on to a major part of it. So what was, what, how did, how did penance work? This was the sacrament that Luther was dealing with. How did it work? It had several things to it. One was purgatory. Purgatory is where you go to get your sins purged before you get to heaven. But how do you get out? How do you get out of purgatory? You get prayed out. You get what? Well, you can get prayed out, all right? How else you get out? You Catholics gotten out yet? You get paid out. That's, and that's going to be the issue that Luther is going to react against. The idea that this is a bingo game. And, and you can pay up for your sins and get yourself freed up, and you can even get your grandma and grandpa freed up, who are already in purgatory. It, it really was not a very good scene. There were four steps to, to uh, penance. And the, the process was to get people out of purgatory. Number one is contrition. That is to say, when you go for your confession, you need to be contrite. You need to be serious about your sin. Uh, just fear of punishment didn't work. You were supposed to be very serious and very contrite. Second step was confession. Uh, since 1215, in the Catholic Church, you had to make an annual confession. Had to go to the priest and confess your sins. Uh, can you think of any scriptures that Catholics would have used as justification for confession? Which was? Yes, and what you bind will be bound. What you loose will be loose. That was certainly one of them. Can you think of another one? Isn't there a passage over in James about confess your sins one to another? You know the rest of that? That you may be healed. Uh, can you see the good in that? Uh, the whole, <coughs> Protestants were late, late getting to this, by the way. But in the 20th century, there developed what came to be known as pastoral care in, in Protestant life. Wayne Oates, who taught at Southern Seminary, spearheaded this along with Seward Hiltner, a Presbyterian at Princeton. They are the ones who sort of got the movement off the ground. It was a kind of informal Protestant confession where people came and shared their lives. Um, 
am I correct in saying, I look at my Catholic friends, am I correct in saying that today you don't have to go to the box, you can't just go to the priest, you have a pastoral conversation. Chuck Poole has pastoral conversations all the time, and every Protestant minister does the same. So there, there is something really healthy, uh, productive about this. You go to the priest, you're contrite, you confess your sins, and the priest pronounces absolution. The priest did not forgive sins. God forgave the sins. The priest was the representative of Christ. Again, does that have any value to have something material right in front of you, you know, to, to respond to? The fourth phase of, of uh, penance was satisfaction. After I go contritely, confess my sins, used to be you had to do the satisfaction first. They reversed that. And I get absolution. Then I am told I need to make some reparations, some satisfactions. We Baptists get off easy, don't we? All we have to do is just bow our heads and say, Lord, forgive us, and we're gone. Um, George Buttrick was a great Presbyterian preacher in New York City, and he, had a, he pastored a really wealthy congregation. And he had one of his wealthy church members come to him one day, and uh, she said, her chauffeur drove her up there, and she said, you know, I, I've just been a mean cuss for all of my life. And she, she really was stricken with guilt. And uh, George Butler heard her, um, said, you know, in the name of Christ, I forgive you. And uh, he said, by the way, every Tuesday, I want you to get your chauffeur to drive you here to the church. And I want to give you the names of the people that are in the hospital. And I want you to take them flowers every Tuesday for the rest of your life. When that woman died, they called her the old flower woman of the hospital. What's wrong with that? You know, there is something to making amends other than getting off with what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Well, satisfaction. Now, that sounds good, but then comes indulgences. The indulgences was a bad system. It was a way of making satisfaction. And in essence, what it was, was you dig in your billfold and you'd give money. And that way you could get your grandma and grandpa out of purgatory and you could pay for your own sins that you've committed that would help purge you when you got in purgatory. So they were building during the Pope was Leo X and they were building beautiful St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And he hired some indulgence sellers. And one of them was named John Tetzel. And he came right to the edge of Luther's territory. And he said to them, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the purgatory, the soul from purgatory doth spring. And Luther sprang up <laughs> in opposition to that. He said it was rote. It didn't help the sinner. It didn't help the church. It made the church look like it was a beggar. You know, I thought about this, though, while I was thinking about John Tetzel. I know a lot of Dr. John Tetzel who's pastored Baptist churches. <laughs> Come out on Sunday morning, and God told them that they needed to have a building program. Huh? And, and you're supposed to ante up? Well, maybe it's not quite as crass, but uh, it was crass. Well, do you have questions about that? Do you, that's, the pro, that's the Catholic way in the 16th century. Have questions or comments? Uh, is there any scriptural justification or for, for uh, the power 
Yeah, yeah. I think these. Uh, there, there, there's a passage in John uh, where Jesus is uh, at the end of his life with his disciples, and he's saying to them, uh, um, you know, what I, what you loose will be loosed, and what we bound be, be will be bound. And also in Matthew 16, where Jesus is talking to Peter and says, "Upon this rock I will build my church," he does the same kind of thing. Uh, th those are the major passages, I think. Charlie, that they would be, they would be using it. Yes. Uh, that that is a really good question. I don't know whether you heard it or not. Was were the indulgences being driven by Rome, or were they a part of the churches in Germany? They were being driven by Rome, and part of the reason Luther had so much luck in reacting against Rome was by the time Luther came along, there was a rising tide of nationalism in Europe. And people were beginning to say Germany for Germans, and English, England for Englishmen. And, and they, were re, they were resenting the fact that their money was going out of Germany to Rome to build basilicas. And Luther would say, I resent this because we've got poor people right here. In, have you ever heard that argument? Uh, so yes, that's a, a really good question and a good comment. Yes. Sort of simple, I guess, but what happens if you never got out of purgatory? You would. We'd get you out somewhere or another. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it is a really complicated story, and I didn't go into it. There's something called the the, the Catholics had something called the Treasury of Merit which meant that they had piled up blessings or benefits from, the, from both Christ and from all the saints who had sort of lived over their righteousness, and, and you drew from that treasury of merit. And so purgatory was always something could, could, you could get out of. I certainly hope so. Yes. Getting ready to go right to that. Thank you. Uh, that's a Catholic approach. Yes. Yeah. Before you do that, uh, when you sold an indulgence, the local priest took a cut, the bishop took a cut, the archbishop took a cut, and some of it made it to Rome. Well, Is that the way it works? that's a pretty good description of it. <laughs> Actually, John Tetzel was selling indulgences for a bishop named Albert of Brandenburg. Albert got a cut, Tetzel got a cut, and then some of it went to Rome. How big was the bishop? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. But there were, these were, these were professional peddlers of indulgences. I mean, these were, uh, these were TV preachers. Well, uh, obviously, a lot of people did not react negatively to it, you know, because they stayed with the Catholic Church and they stayed with the system that was there. Peter's got built. Right, and, and they were disappointed when the medieval synthesis collapsed. Uh, and the medieval synthesis is a, is, a, uh, is a historian's construct, you know, that's not a reality, but it's, it's an effort to describe what was there. Let's go to Luther. That was the Catholic way of dealing with sin. Martin Luther was born in 1483. Um, he, he was a very, very bright guy. Um, went to college, 
had, um, had three really major religious experiences. Um, I think it was 1505 or three, I've forgotten. He was on his way from um, college one day and he fell into a thunderstorm and he was struck or he fell to the ground and he feared for his life and he cried out, Saint Anne, help me, I'll become a monk. Now, that's the description historians give. Surely, surely a lot had been happening in Luther's life up to that point for him to say, I will go into the ministry. I will become a monk. I will uh, go into the monastic order. Two weeks later, he was knocking on the door of an Augustinian um, con uh, monastery, and he was getting ready to go into uh, the monastery. Is that mine or yours? Or? Uh, there is another story that Luther was knocking on the door of the monastery, and somebody said, who is it? And he said, I'm Martin Luther. And the voice said, what do you want? He said, I'm looking for God. Whether that's true or not, it's a great story, and it symbolizes what was happening to Luther. He went in there. He became a monk. Um, he celebrated his first mass in 1507, and when he got to the altar, he almost fell with horror at the idea of celebrating the mass. He trembled, so they say, and almost couldn't get through celebrating the Mass. He was afraid of God because he was not good enough to do what God wanted him to do. He became a scholar, and his good, good friend, Johann Staupitz, sent him to this little northeastern town in Germany uh, near Poland, and uh, he became a Bible teacher. Nobody knew him. And in 1515, he started studying the Psalms. And then he studied the Book of Romans, and he got stuck on chapter 1 and verse 17, which says that the just shall live by faith, which made the interpretation of that time would have been those who are good and just shall live by faith. The more Luther looked at it, the more he studied it, the more he realized that the verb was not active. It was not something you did. It was something done to you. And so he decided that what that verse was saying was, that we are accepted by God by faith, by faith alone. Nothing we do, nothing we can do to make him accept us. It's altogether by faith, and he would later say grace. So it was a kind of flight of the dove moment for Martin Luther. Um, What else do I need to say about that? What he came, he, he was, let's see, look at, look at what, uh, if you have your uh, handout there. Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God before God is a gift, not a human achievement. Luther reversed medieval piety. Good works do not make one acceptable. <coughs> but God's acceptance stimulates good works. And he said later on, I felt as if I had been born again. The gates had been opened and I had entered paradise itself. Look at these three theses that I've written, uh, I've taken from Luther to show you the difference in repentance and penance. When our Lord, and this is the first thesis, this is Luther's first proposition. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended the entire life of believers to be repentance. 
thesis two. The word repentance cannot be understood as sacramental penance. That is, as the confession and satisfaction that are performed under the ministry of priests. And then Thesis 37 said, any true Christian, whether living or dead, participates in all the blessings of Christ in the church, and this is granted by God even without letters of indulgence. So what you have is a clear separation between the idea that God does the saving over against we do some works for our salvation. Uh, it's the idea of grace versus works, the dove versus the mountain. Questions about Luther and Spirit? That's a quick trip through, through Luther. Okay, I want to ask you something. I'm going to turn it. I'm going to turn away from the Reformation. I'm going to turn toward Northminster. If we can make this turn. How did the dove fly for you? How did you experience grace? How were you launched into the life of faith? I want you to think about it for just a minute. I bet every one of you can take this sheet of paper and write something in answer to that. And so I want to ask you, and the reason I'm doing this is because I think we have so dramatized Luther's experience and the Apostle Paul's experience that we have negated how the dove experience, the grace experience, comes to so many people in life. And I'm convinced in your church. So I want you to talk to me. If you don't mind, tell me how the dove flew for you. How did you find out that God accepts you unconditionally? That it's a gift. I asked Kitty not to say anything about my past <laughs> while I'm here. Because she and I were in Delft State together, and she knew me well, and I got saved in dormitory room 221, the stadium dormitory at Delta State University. I got a good, I got a good dose of it. Um, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't anticipating it. I hadn't been to church. I didn't grow up in church. It was an absolute surprise for me. That experience has been an anchor for me for the rest of my life. I was an 18-year-old kid. My guess is that if we took the lid off of our souls here this afternoon. You could talk to me about your experiences of grace. I'd like to try to provoke you. Number one, I think more people experience grace growing up in faith than they ever do the way Martin Luther experienced grace. How many of you grew up in church? See? Uh, About five times a week. <laughs> Do, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. About five times a week. <laughs> well, that, that's works. That's not grace, is it? <laughs> yeah, Charlie. Um, Salvation. 
third clause uh, should have never been lost. <laughs> and I, I, I really believe that. I, there was no time, I don't believe there was any time in my life when I was not a Christian. Because my mother was a devout Christian. She was a singer also. I became a singer too. And uh, from, from my very earliest Christmas songs and Christian songs. And th there, was no, there was no period of demarcation between my life as a sinner and my life as a Christian. Harsh. The, the people who would take that information and say, well, then you're not a Christian. Yes, they would. They you, would. You, just, you can't remember the moment that you started to love Christ and then you're not a Christian. You need to have a conversion. <laughs> well, I know where this church is. Man. I know. Uh, so that's kind of my there was a guy by the name of Harsh Bushnell back in the 19th century who wrote a book entitled On Christian Nurture. He was a, heart, he was a congregationalist pastor in New England. He said, I grew up as a Christian, and I never knew myself otherwise. Yeah. I remember when I first heard that as one of these twice-born people, uh, one of these Martin Luther, Paul, St. Paul of Damascus kind of people, I thought, that boy never was saved. <laughs> I have come to believe that more people experience the grace of God through growing up than they do any other way. I don't know how to explain people in church if that's not true. Do you agree with that or think that's true? Was it, it was true for, I gather, a number of you. I mean, I got close. At 15 years old, I, I made it, I had it, had an experience because of fear and guilt. Mm -hmm. Now, I have become aware, I have become more aware of grace by seeing grace in grace. Oh, you're stealing my thunder. But that's good. That, that's, that's, that's very true. Let me ask you this. How many of you were converted, and I'm, I'm not putting that in quotation marks to minimize it at all, but how many of you were converted or were launched in faith in a revival meeting? Anybody in here? Okay, Kelly. I was expecting more hands, but did you people not go to revival meetings? <laughs> my mother and daddy my mother and daddy are gone uh, I hope I can tell the story they were uh, simple people daddy went to the fourth grade mom to the tenth had no way of uh, accessing the kinds of understanding that I do because I stand on their shoulders and got an education because of it Eddie Martin came to town. I don't know if you remember. Chuck, do you know that name? Eddie Martin came to town. He put up a big tent on the corner of Highway 82 and Number 1 in Greenville. And um, Mom and Daddy went and got saved. And then they wanted me and my brother to go. Well, that was not an option at that time for me. But I did go one night. And I remember Eddie Martin hopping across that stage like a kangaroo, punching holes in the air, literally scaring the hell out of people. But let, let me tell you something. I do believe that a lot of people have had their lives radically changed on the 73rd stanza, just as I am. <laughs> I really believe that. Uh, Billy Graham was going to New York City and he was going to hold a, a crusade and uh, Ryan Holnieber at Union Theological Seminary started opposing him and the president of Union 
Niebuhr's president, said, I want to tell you something, Brian Ho. There was another Billy, and a lot of us are doing what we're doing now because of him. You know who he was talking about? Billy Sunday. Well, nobody was more theatrical. Okay, intellectual curiosity. There are, there are some people who come to grace through intellectual curiosity. And the exhibit A of this is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis moved from atheism to theism to the Christian faith because he kept investigating and looking and being intellectually curious. I think that's some of Martin Luther's stuff, too. Uh, Luther had been studying the Bible for years. He was in the middle of routine activity when he had this flash of insight about him being accepted unconditionally. Do you know people, by the way, who sort of migrated to the faith through intellectual searches? I don't know many, but I've had, I had two students in my 40-year career of teaching uh, that told me they came to Christ because they had studied all of what they called the prevailing philosophers of the day, and Jesus made more sense than any of the rest of them, and they both went into the ministry. And one of my best friends, a guy who's one of the best Christians I've ever known, is a UU minister. He's a minister of the Unitarian Universalist Church. And I was talking to him one day over lunch, and I said, Rhett, what caused you to go into ministry? He said, buddy, I had a course in college called Social and Intellectual History. And after I was in that course, I decided to go into ministry. Why not? Why not let it be an intellectual search? Well, I better hurt. Some people experience grace through suffering. Uh, I'm sure that was part of what happened to the Apostle Paul. I, I'm sure of it. Some people bottom out, uh, just suffer, and uh, the lights go on for them. I don't know if you know the name of Jürgen Moltmann or not, but he was, he was one of the prominent theologians of recent years. Moltmann was a German soldier in World War II. He was uh, imprisoned in a British prison camp. Um, a guard gave him a copy of the New Testament, had the Psalms in the back of it, the Hebrew Psalms, the Jewish Psalms. He started reading those Psalms and reading the New Testament and he became so acutely guilty and suffered because of what he had done that he gave his life to Christ in that camp and became one of the world's great theologians. Suffering can cause grace to happen in our lives. Yes. Exactly. Yes. You say it better than I do. That's wonderful. Yeah. I, I just don't, I, it doesn't happen the same way to everybody. Um, and I think we, make, we have made a huge mistake in the church by thinking that it happens all way, one way for Catholics or one way for Protestants. It just doesn't. I mean, I think it flies like a dove. You can't explain it, um, but you can't deny it. Um, let me just mention two or three other things. I think some people come to faith and grace through service. I'll bet some of you in this church, I'll bet you there are people in this church who worked in your social ministries, who had their faith either rekindled or uh, may be brought to life. Um, do you know of people like that? Yeah. Some people come to, I think some people experience grace through creation. 
Mary Oliver. And I think some people experience grace through joy. Dorothy Day, who was uh, the great Catholic social worker, said that faith became real for her when her daughter was born. She became so happy that she experienced the goodness of life, the grace of life. Well, would you like to add something about other ways, other approaches, other things that happen? Yes, please. Right, transformative. That's the way they that's the way they talk about it at Mercer University. We've got a program at Mercer that I love called Mercer on Mission, where kids go to third world. By the way, if I were a president and had the money, I would require every kid that came to college to have a third world experience. Because I think it's transformative. I imagine what that would do to doctors and lawyers and preachers and uh, social workers to have that kind of experience and to be touched by uh, the hurt of the world. I just think it would make a lot of difference. Other comments or questions about this? Okay, I'm gonna quit, but I'm gonna do one other thing before I quit, and that is, I wanna talk about the improbable grace of the Reformation and the improbable grace of Northminster, the latter of which I know nothing about. But you can tell me. Let me tell you, first of all, I do know a little bit about the improbable grace of the Reformation. It was very improbable that Martin Luther would lead a Protestant Reformation. Uh, in 1515, now remember, he, he tacked that up on the wall in 1517. In 1515, there was a list of 100 theological professors listed as outstanding teachers in northern Germany. Luther was not on the list. Two years later, almost everybody in Europe knew him. It was really highly improbable. He hadn't written, I told you he hadn't written, but he had written an introduction to a, a medieval textbook. That's all he had written. After he started the Reformation, he started writing tracts I'm going to tell you one reason Luther was popular is that he didn't write for academics. He was also a pastor, and he wrote for people in the pews. And he, the way he garnered the Reformation was that he wrote little tracts, pamphlets they were called. In fact, there is a marvelous book that some of you, if you're interested in print and publications, newspapers and that kind of thing, this is a a very recent book, it's called Brand Luther. And it's the story of how Luther used the printing press, by the way, which had just been invented, you know, in 1450 or something like that. But he used the printing press, but he didn't use it to write long, uh, esoteric, theological essays. He did some of that. But where he really made his money was writing for the common people. Boy, there's something there. Uh, I never did write the long theological essays, but the first book I ever wrote was Not a Silent People. And when I wrote that book, I had, written, I had written essays for a little magazine called, it was the College Magazine. I've forgotten what it was, KB or? It was the Student Magazine. You remember that? Somebody, had, uh, John Hendricks. No, Norm Bowman. Norm Bowman said, buddy, I want you to write uh, eight articles on church history for my students. I said, students don't read church history. <laughs> it's impossible. So I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll write about fights. They'll read about fights. So I wrote eight little chapters on controversies. After I did that, a guy at the Broadman Press said, we want to publish that book, and we want to do it, but there are two things about it. Number one, you can't change a word that you've written. And number two, the title is going to be Not a Silent People, and you don't have any say-so over that. 
I learned in writing Not Asylum People that the only way to reach people in the pews is to write for people in the pews. You cannot write for your colleagues at the center. You've got, somebody's got to be doing that. You've got to be serious about it. It's got to be profound. But somebody's got to do what Luther did. And what he did was to make it acceptable. It was improbable that the Reformation would occur in the little town of Wittenberg. When Luther went there, there were 2,000 people there. It, it, was a, it was a place you didn't go. The only thing there was a good university that had just been established. So he went there, this little place nobody had ever heard of. Another improbable grace. It's, it, is, it is a miracle. It is a miracle that Martin Luther was not killed. He was condemned by the Pope. He was condemned by Charles V, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He was a heretic. And he was a, a man of treason. How did he live? Frederick the Wise was his magistrate in the little area where he lived in Wittenberg. And Frederick the Wise, it's, it's amazing, Frederick the Wise was a devoted Catholic. He had one of the biggest collections of relics in all of Europe. He believed in indulgences. Why would he protect Luther? Because it was his university. It was Frederick University. But anyway, and then this improbable style of writing, a brief, clear pamphlet. Now I want to ask you, uh, and I really don't know enough to talk about this, but I know this church got started on a street corner with some conversation. That's an improbable grace, isn't it? Do you know, do you people really know how improbable it is that you've had the ministries you've had? I mean, that's, uh, I, I don't even believe that, that you've had the Outstanding, outstanding folks, and uh, they all, all of them were, had feet of clay. But this church is known, not only in Baptist life, you're known as an Episcopal Baptist church, of course. <laughs> you're known in, in liturgical circles. It, it, it's improbable, it seems to me that this all started on street corner and you guys built this thing here. Um, I don't know how you talk about that apart from grace. Um, I, we drove up here this afternoon and saw these beautiful buildings. Uh, where did you first worship? In a school for the blind? Well, that's my spill for the day. Katie?
Bell died just about the time the book and the movie came out. So I never had a chance, even though I didn't know him yet, to really talk to him about that. As a non-North Minister meeting member, I want to say, I think in this state, at this time, this is North Minister's final time. Yeah, thanks. Quite a tribute. Anybody else have a word? I've run out. So let's see where we go here. Okay. We will want to thank Dr. Sheridan for his uh, words tonight. I think we have certainly uh, had, a, had a wonderful evening. If you would, please stay. We've got a few refreshments in the back, and Dr. Sheridan is going to be around for just a bit. You might want to. To, to stay and, and, uh, and visit with him just a moment. And now I'm going to end with one thing. And talk about improbable grace, Dr. Sherman. When I, I grew up in, in the church, I was one of those that grew up in the church. And, but I think my moment of improbable grace came when I was 10 years old and I got in a fight at Vacation Bible School. <laughs> and, my, and my mother came around the corner. It's improbable grace that I'm alive today. <laughs>